Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about The Power of the Dog, a western directed by Jane Campion, who's best known for the piano. Yes. From 1993. We call it a western. It's more like a drama set in the west. Well, I mean, certainly a western. It's set in the west. Well, but, you know, westerns aren't just films that are set in the west. I think they more or less are. It's a very wide term, really. Hmm. Well, I think that's one of the things that's interesting about it being a western if you allow me that, is that it's in 1925, and you really think of Westerns, which may be one of your uh, queries with it, you really think of Westerns as late 1800s. Well, actually, that might be something that's specific to maybe one of the meanings of the film, because I believe the frontier was officially closed in 1925. Ah, is it? It was officially declared closed in 1925, yes. Right. So the periodization might have a particular resonance. Sure. Uh, it's uh, based on a novel of the same name by Thomas Savage from 1967. Uh, and it's about two brothers, Phil and George, who are wealthy. They own a ranch in uh, Montana, I think it's mm-hmm. set. And Phil, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, is what I would describe as a prick. He's a bully. <laughs> <laughs> He's a bully. He likes being in charge of this gang. They've got some, like, ten members of their kind of cow uh, handling uh, group, mm-hmm. if you like. George, uh, played by Jesse Plemons, comes across as more feeble. He's the one who is always taking the brunt of Phil's uh, kind of barbs and attacks and that sort of thing. That, that's, that's very much the relationship they have. They're on a cattle drive. They stay at this place run by Kirsten Dunst's character, who is a widow, and she has a son, played by Cody Smith-McPhee. And he's picked on immediately by Phil, for being a little bit fake, effeminate, the, you know, the way he, he's, he's the waiter for them for the evening and the way he drapes his tea towel over his arm, that sort of thing. He's immediately picked on by Phil, but uh, one thing leads to another. And in the course of apologising, Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst get together. They end up getting married. And uh, he brings her and her son back with them to their ranch. They move in. And Phil sets about making... Certainly Kirsten Dunst's life, hell. Yes, he basically turns her into a depressed alcoholic. Yeah, which is an interesting... That's uh, one of the interesting rhymes in the film because she starts off at the start saying, I hate alcohol. She hates mm. the people drinking. Yeah, exactly. They're in here too early. And she's become an alcoholic before you know it. Yes. And he's the cause. Uh, that, uh, that's why I'd say without spoilers. And, and it's interesting that the film can be spoiled so heavily, I think. And it ends up, I would say, becoming surreptitiously a whodunit. Like, you don't even know that it's going to become such a thing. Mm. And by the end, there is a twist and a revelation of someone's done something to someone, and Mm. I I really didn't expect that. It's a very powerful film, and I think part of the reason why I find it a very powerful film is because everything that you said I agree with, but also it's more complicated, Mm. right? So the brothers are very close. You can see that there's a real reliance and dependence on each other. And that though the Benedict Cumberbatch character is the one who is overtly in control, I think actually that Jesse Plemons' character is the one who is in control. Yeah, who Benedict Cumberbatch kind of bows down to, basically. Right, who, who Benedict Cumberbatch's character needs him more than the other way around. Yeah, he does. And it's interesting that they share a bed up until their 40s. It's up until the, uh, the, the family that he marries into moves in. That's right. That they're sharing this bed. So, and you get the feeling that, and that's part of the reason why Phil tries to do everything possible 
to destroy the marriage of his brother, basically. I mean, initially, he doesn't want to lose his brother. His brother is his world. <laughs> yeah. You know. Uh, At the start, he won't even like let them all go into for dinner until the brother's there. Not without my brother, he says. Which yes. is, yeah. Uh, so, it, you know, the film has, like, these very interesting dynamics that are almost like, you know, on the surface, one thing, but really, there's something else that intrudes on it. So, for example, they live in the mountains, in the wilderness... Yeah, they're cattle ranchers, right? But the house is a mansion, Mm. yeah, with all the maids, silver, you know, wood paneling, yeah, that you'd expect in a mansion in New York, right? Mm. So, you know, and then you find out that Phil, you know, who is like this ordinary, mean, uncouth, rough rancher, is in fact a classic scholar from Yale. Yeah, and he plays the banjo really well. (laughs) He plays the banjo really well, right? So the film really sets up one thing and then it layers it and layers it, you know, and then kind of things turn around. I thought it was really beautifully done. And actually, from the beginning, you know, there's like this huge panning shot from inside the house, which, you know, on the one hand shows you the length of the house because, you know, it pans through three or four windows. And it shows you the splendor of nature outside, mm. right? And then it keeps framing and reframing uh, Phil as a ra- in a rancher outfit, yeah, from frame to frame to frame, right? And then, of course, it's a shot that's repeated at the end, yeah, but this time as he's going to the doctor, mm. right? And when I saw that first shot, I thought, oh my God, you know, this is cinema. <laughs> right? yeah. Like, ah! yeah, it, was, it was so beautiful, right, to see and to experience, but also kind of, conceptually, mm. yeah, complex there. There's a framing and a reframing, the inside, the outside, yeah. the darkness inside, the light outside. Yeah, those are kind of almost themes that the film kind of unfurls, yeah. Mm. Um, I want to think a little bit about Benedict Cumberbatch, um, and this will get into spoiler territory, so I want to make a, like a clean spoiler break here, mm. as we will talk about revelations about the characters and so on and so forth from now on. Um, his... Casting was interesting to me and ultimately ended up working in a way that I didn't expect, didn't mm. think it would. I do like Benedict Cumberbatch, but we've spoken before about English actors playing American roles, mm. and he's always one that really stands out to me. Mm. Um, it always feels very artificial when I hear him in an American accent. Mm. Even though I like him, and I think he always brings something interesting to his roles, I, I always see Benedict Cumberbatch doing a performance, mm. right? And and certainly he's doing a performance of an American here and an American of a certain time and style as well. Mm. So it's very artificial. Um, but then it really started to work for me when you realise that the character is acting. Mm. The character is playing a part himself. The ca- so the character is revealed. Constantly. Yeah. Is um, yeah, harbours this love for, uh, 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 what's his name? Um, Bronco Henry a former mentor, kind of idol of his, the guy taught him to ride and all this kind of thing. And Bronco Henry you never see, but the the artefact of him, particularly this saddle mm. that Phil is constantly looking after and uh, has a, a plaque next mm. to, loving friend or whatever it says, um, Bronco Henry. And then in a pivotal scene, you see this handkerchief with Bronco Henry's initials on it mm. that Phil masturbates with and kind of spends time with. In it's this. an incredible scene. It's a delirious scene handled with restraint. Because, you know, if you describe it, mm. it's like delirious, right? He, he has a secret passageway into a pond that is his own private enclosure, 
Yeah, but it's with nature, right? So it has, you know, that... Uh, um, what's that American poet, gay poet? It'll, it'll come back to me. Um, very famous. One of the earliest kind of American uh, 19th century gay poets. Anyway, uh, you know, it's got that kind of feel. Yeah, so it's nature. But he goes into the secret passageway. Yeah, and then um, he rubs himself in mud, right? Yeah. You know, and then he's lying on his back with the sunshine. And then he's stroking the scarf, right? It really is something out of Isadora Duncan or, you know... <laughs> Or, or uh, that scene in Written on the Wind where Haley goes up the stairs, you know, uh, and she dances wa- wildly, you know, next to all these uh, 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 phallic flowers. It has that kind of a delirium, mm. but actually it's filmed, you know, with enough of a distance so that there's a kind of a restraint, yeah, in what is conceptually quite delirious. Yeah. Mm. But what I'm getting to is, so his character, that really throws a light on the way he responds to Pete, which is Kirsten Dunst's son, who has this effeminate kind of slight way uh, way about him. Because it's not just a straight up kind of hatred and teasing of this kid, but it it suggests that that this kid is, is so comfortable with, this kid doesn't mind. There's that shot where he's walking up and down. It's after he's seen Cumberbatch in the lake. So I think he has a little bit more ease about him as well, the, mm. the son, because uh, he knows this now. Mm. Um, but he, as he walks up and down uh, wh- where all the various cowboys are, you know, just looking at him and laughing and whatever, and he's just he's happy with his way about him. Well, I don't think he's happy about it. Well, he, he doesn't seem to feel the pressure on him to act differently. Well, no. But on the other hand, I mean, actually, I thought that was a very powerful scene, you know, because, you know, there's all these people, you know... Uh, with no respect whatsoever. I mean, they are working for his stepfather, you know, and he just gets bullied and harassed. And, you know, it's like a, it's like as if he were a beautiful woman by a building site, except, you know, it's all entirely bullying, faggot, this and that. Mm. You know, it's quite a horrific scene, which he handles with grace. Yeah. You know. I think the way it reflects on Cumberbatch's character is that I think what he sees is someone who is comfortable enough with the way he is that it threatens his own secret. Yes, well, I mean, two things. Uh, I agree about him being comfortable because one of the things that he tells his mother beforehand is that he's made a friend at university before Mm. he returns to the ranch, right? So he's already got a friend. Yeah, and I won't bring the friend here because there's someone I don't want him to meet and that's when Phil's being very, very um, threatening and nasty. So so it's very clear, you know, like the boy's a scientist and doesn't have the same hang-ups about his sexuality uh, that the Cumberbatch character has. However, about your other point that you made, Phil is nasty and mean and bullying in ways that are completely socially unacceptable from his very first sight of that boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like this explosion in the cafe, yeah, where they're serving yeah. when he's serving the meal. Completely unprovoked, yeah. So it's something that boy is endangering him by his very presence. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so but it, it's, it's when you see, when you, when these things come out about Phil later on, that, in reflection, makes sense. Oh, yes. You know? no. I, th- I, th- I think the film is one of these that a second viewing, or even just thinking back on your first viewing, is so rewarding. Yes. There's so much... I mean, I said to you, because you were watching it just a little bit after I was, and I said, I'll oh, remember the first line of the film. The first line yes. of the film puts everything into context, and it does indeed, but you forget it. Yes. And the opening line is this narration 
from the son uh, saying something like, uh, when my father died, I just wanted to make sure my mother was happy. That's the only thing I wanted. And what kind of son wouldn't look after them and wouldn't save her? Yes. And it kind of, it just, it, it kind of blends into the background. We forget even that he said it. But then looking back at it, you go, oh, that's, that's everything. Because that's ultimately what puts the rest of the film into context, the rest of his actions into context. Yes. I think that I'm going to quote it again because it is more or less what you say. And but you wrote it down. I wrote it down. And uh, the thing is that the film is so precise mm. that I think every word and every image counts. And this is an example of it. So when my father passed, I wanted nothing more than my mother's happiness. For what kind of man would I, would I be if I did not help my mom uh, and... Oh, well, now I can't read my handwriting. <laughs> and did not save her. And did not save her, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and then what's interesting about that is, you know, so this question of help, saving, happiness, yeah, and masculinity. I, that mm. it's, it's kind of his job as a man, which everyone around him accuses him of not being, mm. yeah, that he in fact does fulfill. Though he fulfills it in a spoiler yeah, murderous way. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I thought that last image of him upstairs looking down on, you know... Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons. Kissing, you know, and being at ease as a couple, mm. yeah, is a direct response to that opening sentence. Yeah, exactly. He has satisfied his own requirement. That's right. Um, he's got Phil out of the picture, and those two are happy now, can yes. be happy. That's right. And he has this... It's not quite a smile, but he looks satisfied with himself, and and it, I find it kind of creepy. I mean, because part of it is learning what this kid is capable of, what he's been planning all along. Mm. It feels like it's it feels certainly more planned than ad hoc. I think there's a really clever misdirect in the film where uh, he brings in that rabbit, he traps a rabbit, and they bring it in, they're stroking it, oh, isn't it lovely? And before you know it, he's dissecting it on his table, and it's quite a shock, right? But he's like, I'm a scientist, I, I want to be a doctor, I need to practice surgery. And then later, when he's out on his own in, in the hills, he comes across this dead cow, and he, again, Spins just it. goes sets about like, cutting it up, right? And he cuts the skin, that's what you see in particular. Mm. And I think it's a really clever thing, because you don't pay any heed to it, right? You've seen him cut up animals once before, you know, mm. whatever, he's just he's doing it again. Um, and then you, when eventually Phil dies, and you're putting this all together, you realise that was the hide that he gave to Phil to make this rope for him. That's he right. saw the opportunity. There's this amazing shot of him giving those... Uh, once he's given that those those strips of hide to um, Phil, which really reflect those those strips of paper that he makes mm. the flowers out of earlier right. as well. Um, he, he puts them in cold water, Phil does, and with his hands, and the blood from it... He's got an open wound on his hand, so it all spreads around. And it, it, it becomes such a significant shot in, in retrospect... Because that's where the murder takes place. You know, mm -hmm. he's done this. He's passed on the anthrax from this cow to Phil. And one of the things that we know, which again, it comes back in a little line of dialogue, is that Phil keeps away from diseased animals, don't go near them. So how could this possibly happen? Well, it was deliberate and that's what makes it clear. And then the fact that the kid, when he finally has this rope mm. in his hands, is handling it with gloves. He knows exactly what he's done. Mm -hmm. Again, makes it very clear. But I think what a clever way to bring that together. That's the reason that I say it's, it's a whodunit that jumps up on you because I can't, I can't speak for you. I had no idea that kind of story was happening. No, only in retrospect, only once it happens. And I put everything together. Do I even see that that was the structure? Yes. But also kind of, let's not dwell on that too much because I think to me, the film 
is a great portrait of, you know, a self-hating homosexual, right? <laughs> and both, you know, the self-hating homosexual and the defense against, you know, the bitterness and nastiness that's engendered by that ends up a kind of a murderousness that afflicts both, you know? Mm. So, you know, because basically it's it's his self-hatred, really, that kind of leads to this bitterness, to him being nasty, to him being a bully, yeah, to him overcompensating. And it's that that leads to his own death, you know, or that provokes the young boy, yeah, yeah well, the, the, to kill him. Pete would never have done what he did had uh, Phil not behaved the way he had. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And kind of, uh, you know, the boy is the opposite of what Phil is because, the, you know, the boy is quite Nancy. Yeah. You know, the boy is very well cast. He's, he's kind of very, very thin and gangly, almost at odds, yeah, with his body, really. Mm. Um, in that period of adolescence when kids shoot up uh, uh, but haven't filled in yet, and he's very, very Nancy, yeah, kind of. So, so as he walks... You know, he's not quite mincing, right? But there is something kind of that is very, the slightly effeminate, and in conjunction with the thinness and the gangliness, mm. makes him, yeah, stand out. And it's something that almost like viscerally offends Phil, mm. right? And kind of why it offends him is, you know, kind of very interesting. And I also, I found it particularly interesting as well, because these are structures of oppression, yeah, that work on different levels, you know. So, you know, Trinity Minha said there's, you know, there's, a, there's always a third world in every first world and a first world in every third world. And you get a little bit of that in this film, yeah. Uh, and sorry, in homosexual cultures around the world that is depicted in this film, you know. So it's almost like, you know, masculinity is overvalued and femininity is kind of despised, really. And you see it played out in this film, yeah, through uh, uh, Phil's response, yeah, mm. to the boy. But then, of course, it's complicated even further because this response also speaks of a, a hidden desire, yeah, for the boy. Yeah. Which I think is made very clear as well. Phil is also playing class as well. Yes. Um, as you suggested, as you mentioned earlier, it's a surprise to learn how highly educated he is, that he was at Yale or whatever it was. Um, we, we kind of know that of his brother, mm. but you, I guess you kind of assume well, the brother takes care of the business. That's he, he, he's the one who has the contact with the governor. Mm. But that scene is kind of central to what I'm talking about because Phil refuses to join this dinner with, with their parents and with the governor and his wife. He refuses, he won't wash up for it, he just won't come. And then eventually he comes in and conspicuously is covered in dirt. He says, don't come near me because I smell and everything. And, and he's ultimately there to torture um, Rose, the Kirsten mm. Dunst character, as he always is at this time in the film. But like part of his, his role, generally, is playing of a lower class than his education and his wealth would suggest that he has. He, he, basically, though, the working in dirt, the working with the cowhands and so on. Though, there are moments where it seeps out. And actually, I think that's the beauty of the film. You know, how it complicates these things and how it leaves little clues and... You know, so you were talking about Cumberbatch's theatricality and him having to perform, right? Mm. And yet there are moments where, you know, he's not in control or it seeps through or it shows through, right? So, you know, there's that scene where he initially goes into 
the cafe, you know, where Rose is, uh, and he sees the flower. And you could see he's entranced by it, mm. right? And actually, he's pictured in front of this flower, <laughs> like, yeah. you know. Uh, and then there's that moment in the bar where, you know, he toasts and he speaks about Romulus and Ru- Ru- Remus. Romulus and Remus. And he, sa- and he says it in, in Latin, in lupo, whatever, yes, yes. right? You know, so, yeah, so yeah, these through. things... Well, the interesting thing about that flower is that he turns when he discovers that the boy's made it. No. The boy tells him, and then it becomes a piece of shit to him. Mm. And then he burns it yes. quite deliberately. Because he doesn't need to, because he's only lighting a cigarette, and he, if he can reach the fucking candle with a flower, he can reach it with a cigarette. He's no, exactly. doing it deliberately, you know, to be mean. And that in itself is a kind of class arrogance. Yeah, mm. that you're the boss, you can go into this restaurant... And ruin property. Yeah. Because actually, that's what he's burning. He's, he's burning something that isn't his own. And he just thinks that, you know, his brother will come and pay for it and he can do whatever he wants, right? So there is that arrogance. And I think also for me, it really touched the, um, not a nerve, but it had these resonances, right? Because, you know, I remember as a young teen, yeah, coming out and meeting people, you know, and there was a sector of the people that you meet, which were like these really bitter old queens, and they were really nasty. And it's, it's somehow, you know, that, like, social oppression had won, and they'd become, like, you know, bitter about their own life, and that in that bitterness, they lashed out to make people's other people's lives as difficult as they could, right? And you see that, I think, mm-hmm. in Phil's character, yeah, in, in, in the character that Cumberbatch plays. And it did resonate with me. Because, you know, I think you see fewer and fewer. (laughs) As social conditions, you know, have improved that kind of repressed bitterness Mm. that manifests itself as as nastiness, yeah, as kind of, you know, real unkindness is lessened, right? But but Cumberbatch's portrayal to me evoked all of those things. I think it's a really rich performance. It's, it's, It's jealousy, isn't it? That's a big part of it, I think. It's, it's. I think part of it is is a jealousy. Well, with the people you're speaking about, I think it sounds like some is some is jealousy to do with the fact that social conditions have become easier, and it's not as hard for younger people as it was for older people. With, yeah, but I'm with, thinking more. Okay, there is that, but I'm thinking of more than that. I'm thinking of, for example, you know that like if you were gay. There was just a lot of things you couldn't do. You couldn't do it in public. You might not get uh, a promotion. You know, you would lose your job if you were caught out, right? And kind of, you know, all these things grind at a person. It mm. lessens their life. It's unfair and it's unjust and it embitters people. Well, so some of it is just that extra time they're spent on Earth being oppressed eats into you. Yes. Yeah. You know, so it's not just that younger people have it better because actually younger people didn't always have it better. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like... Let's say if you came out in the 40s and somebody else, you know, was 20 years younger and came out in the 60s, it wouldn't necessarily be any better, Mm. right? Yeah, but... Well, that's certainly not the case with Phil. I mean, there's no suggestion of of gay people having been accepted in America at any point in this film. But Phil has accepted himself better. But I think where the the feeling of jealousy comes in is is maybe it's to do with that, having spent 25 years longer on this earth than Pete has. Well, his brother got married, he can't get married... Yeah, yeah, like there's all, there are all, you yeah. know, his brother who can make conversation with anyone, yeah, nonetheless gets to know the mayor, blah, 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 yeah. Mm. Whereas, you know, it's almost as he can't, yeah. he can only talk to the man around him who he has power over. 
Yeah. Right. And then he relies on his brother for other things. So, and to some extent, maybe what he sees in Peter, someone who just hasn't had to go through that yet, has is 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 able to seem more comfortable with himself because he hasn't had forty years of this. Well, it's interesting that as the film progresses, first of all, he's discovered. Right. Mm. Uh, there is that wonderful scene where the boy enters the secret passageway, opens the box, and finds the pictorial physique magazines with Eugene Sandow, the the, the turn of the century bodybuilder, right? Yeah, and it says property of... It says Bronco Henry Bronco. name on it, yeah. Uh, so, you know, these are almost like totemic fetishes of, you know, the remains of this love, you know, that they once had, uh, which is very interestingly uh, uh, retold. He says, he saved my life. You know, I caught a chill or the weather was treacherous or something. And we slept, you know, and yeah. he prevented me from, you know, freezing to death. And, the, you know, and the boy asked, did you sleep naked? And that's almost like a clue that the boy's caught on. Yeah, and Phil's aware that the boy's caught on, right? And then almost like the relationship kind of changes. Well, I mean, I thought it was quite clear because that's a little bit later on. Isn't that when he's making the rope even when he asks that? Because I think that's the point ah, where, yeah, right. in retrospect, that line... Um, did you sleep naked? Comes across like a line that Phil would have said earlier in the film, teasing someone, bullying mm. them, basically. Mm. Now, actually, that's an indication. Again, in retrospect, it didn't seem like it at the time. At the time, I think it all seems like it's coming towards some form of romance between them. Well, I um, think there's no. I, th- I would even go further. So, you know, I had this brief discussion on Facebook with uh, Peter Barron, and yeah, I saw this just just now. I wanted to ask you about it. Yeah, yeah because he was saying. You know, part of what he didn't like about the film was that it was too pat. You know, that he liked films to have more mystery because the ending so clearly responded to the beginning. The ending ties everything up yeah. so neatly. And I think for me, the film's ambiguity lies elsewhere. So I was questioning, did they have sex? Did the young boy have sex? Because my uh, reading is, yes, they did. Right, so the scene is that, that that's when he gives him the rope and that's when the infection happens and that's when he asks the question, yes. did you sleep naked? So, and the next morning... Phil is uh, ill and he's taken off to uh, the doctor in the town and that's the last you see of him, he dies. So yeah, it's something lingering. You don't see what happened the rest of that night. So there's this interesting connection between sex and death, which is another thing. Yeah, and in the first instance, sex and near death. Yeah? Mm. The first time he had sex was like due to him being so ill he was about to die. Right? Like, Mm. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then at the end, uh, it's unclear whether they have sex but I think the film is symbol. To me, it's symbolizing that they have sex. So the boy, you know, rolls the cigarette, right, mm. and then places it in his mouth, which to me is like a symbolic blowjob. You know, I would agree with what Mark said in this. So I don't know if you've seen this. No, I have. It's only 20, 30 minutes ago that he made it. So let me just read it to you. This would. This was my read on the scene, where uh, Mark said. He said, it's definitely a romantic gaze, but is it just the bait in the trap later drawing the man who thinks he's the hunter but isn't? I.e., the kid's doing it deliberately. He knows exactly how his playing comes back. Sure, but one thing doesn't negate the other. It's ambiguous, right? But I think the film is quite heavily symbolising it. You know, because... uh, So, you know, you could have shown the boy being seductive as a way of luring him in in other ways, but the imagery is him rolling the cigarette putting it on his lips as, like, Cumberbatch draws in. It is, like, a clear symbolization of a blowjob. 
And then as he's doing the rope, there's, yeah, he's rubbing it against his mm-hmm. thigh, right? Like, you know, the film is full of phallic imagery like that, you know? So, yeah. so for me, the boy could be luring him in and nonetheless, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, well, I think no one's denying that that imagery is there and yeah. that that's the thing it symbolises. But the question is how... Well, the question is... Did they, did, they, did they have sex? Well, we the question is, was it deliberate? And, and it may not be a very important question. Actually, it's not one that can be resolved. Did they have sex? No. Um, it's not one that can be resolved, but the film suggests it, right? And I think that suggestion is important, you know, particularly in the light of the earlier story where the moment that he fell in love, you know, with Bronco Billy or Bronco... Bronco Henry. Henry. Was when yeah. he got a chill so bad he was about to die and that Bronco saved him by, mm-hmm. you know... Well, yeah, no, I, I agree. Body. I mean, there, it, it's definitely doing a lot of work in doubling up the stories of Bronco Henry and Phil and Phil and Pete. Mm. And to the point where um, it's not like the characters aren't aware of it, I think. You know, the, um, earlier on in that scene with making the rope at the end, um, Pete goes over to the to that saddle uh, that's always there and he says, how old were you when you met Bronco Henry? And basically the answer is, I was as old as you are now. Like, they are being set up as the same age exactly. difference. Just a little bit further on. And the, the um, stroking of the saddle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All of that stuff. Um, and then the fact that you know there was some form of relationship between Bronco Henry and Phil means you're probably expecting some similar form of relationship to develop mm. one generation down. Um which is, I think is part of the film's, what the film does to misdirect you and part of the subversion of that. Because when, when it gets to the point where it's before that making the rope scene, Rose has given away the hides to the Native Americans mm-hmm. that come through. And Phil is distraught. He needs them to make this rope. And so Pete says, oh, I've got some. I'll give you these. And that's the moment that I thought they would kiss. Mm-hmm. It seemed to be almost leading up to that. He gets him wrapped by the neck and he's so sincere, Phil, at that point. And actually, I was thinking, don't, don't do it, don't do it, because I just wouldn't believe it. You know, even though the film has been setting up uh, this this reflection of the of the relationship mm. from that early relationship, I was thinking, I still wouldn't believe this. I'm glad it didn't do that, and it and it went in this completely different direction. Where actually, it becomes the um... from the moment that the boy arrives, what do we see? We see him threading the rope. Yeah, tying different ends together, yeah, into something that's unified. You know, again, I think it's symbolic. Then what uh, he teaches him to ride. <laughs> again, you know, yeah, it, it can be read highly symbolically. And then what does he make of the rope? He makes a lasso. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, yes. Yes, I don't <laughs> so a good sound effect for the podcast. Jose mind throwing a lasso and <laughs> yes, sorry, I'm terrible at whistling. Um, now I'm not. I might be overinterpreting, right? But it's not just one thing. That yeah, mm-hmm. kind of all of these things together, and of course these are all attempts subsequently of Phil bringing the boy near him. Mm. One last thing I would say about the speculation on did they have sex or not is the kid knows that um, Phil has contracted anthrax poisoning at this point. He's done it to him. Yes. So would he go near him that night? I don't know. On a practical level, I don't know. I don't think I, I don't. I wouldn't risk it. Well, but, you know, maybe he's a better scientist than we are and he knows. 
how it can be passed on and how not. Possibly. Uh, so, because the whole thing relied on an open wound, didn't it? Yes, that's right. So, anyway, I, I don't... I'm not going to Google whether anthrax is sexually transmitted. I don't think it's important. Like, I think whether it happened or didn't happen is something, as you said, we can't resolve. That the film plants a suggestion of this possibility is to me important. Mm. Yeah, and it's structurally important because then it connects with all the other things. Just the same way that, you know, he first had sex going on this trip with Bronco Henry. He's planning to take the boy on a trip to the mountains. Mm. He plans to give him the rope before he leaves. Yeah, the mm. lasso, you know. So so kind of there's a, a concatenation of meanings there, which I think are, are very resonant. Yeah, so maybe they're not fixed. You know, maybe you can't argue it is certainly this. But nonetheless, you know, the fact that it's even a possibility mm. opens up all of these characters, creates all this ambiguity. You know, that Peter was saying the film was somehow lacking. Yeah, that kind of... Yeah. yeah. I want to think a little bit about Rose, the Kirsten Dunst character, because I think she's a little underdeveloped, a little underutilised. And it's interesting, we've been speaking a little bit about oppression. Mm. Uh, and the oppression of gay people and of these characters in particular. Um, women are also oppressed, and you see oppression in her, but her oppression is much more personal for the most part. It's in Cumberbatch's treatment of her. Yes. But generally, I think her whole part in the story is a little underdeveloped, and I wanted a bit more from her. I don't know. I mean, I think it is what it is, but I also think the film deals very richly with her, and partly because... You know, Kirsten Dunst is so great in this. I think, you know, she's transparent and, you know, she could look both beautiful and haggard and also, like, uh, um, concerned and depressed and kind of beaten, you know. I think she's marvellous. And, and I think Jane Campion says a lot through her face, mm. yeah, about her condition at any given point. The class thing, I wouldn't overemphasize that. I mean, in the sense that she is a doctor's wife, right? Like... Yeah, her first husband was a doctor. I mean, he wasn't like mm. a cowhand or, you know, or a butler or anything. He was a doctor, right? Now, the thing is that obviously as soon as her husband died, she obviously opened up this restaurant or, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, uh, she had to work. But we see her being quite happy working. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what makes her unhappy is her son being bullied, right? Uh, so I think what, what beats is Phil's treatment of her, which is outright nasty from the beginning, Mm-hmm. Where he says something like, you're just a whore here for money or something like that. Right? Yeah. It's budget. like, you know, as brutal as you can get. And he continues saying that. Yeah. And undermines her at every moment in, in a way that is quite sinister. And casually torments her with the music. And I think it's such a brilliant choice, the Radetzky March by Strauss, because it has a, a kind of... Um, like, honestly, the scene where he joins in with the banjo upstairs when she's practicing it, and he then he, he plays so beautifully and, and shows off that he can, is like a scene from Saw or something, with, mm. like, a little child's tune. Mm. You know, like how, like... The, the, the James Wan, who makes the Saw films, or originated them at least, has a whole thing about puppets and dummies and how creepy they are, and it's like all that kid stuff and, like, little playing tunes and clowns and stuff has all that feeling around it. Mm. This presence, this terrifying presence in the house is not leaving her alone, especially because at the start she doesn't see it. Mm. She just hears it on top of her own music. Really plays like a horror scene. Mm. That. And that's his whole presence at that point. And really terrifying, and, su- and such a great choice of, of piece for it. Like another piece just wouldn't work as well as that one does. So bad and creepy. I think the whole use of music in this film is exceptional. Johnny Greenwood did the score. 
and it's heavy on the cello. So I think it's so. From what I understand, he had to record a lot of it himself in terms of like they couldn't really get an orchestra in because of COVID. So it's just him playing the cello and laying it one layer on top of another on his own. He builds up this orchestral sound. And apparently the banjo was also a cello. Like the banjo just didn't sound right. It mm. sounded, I guess, too playful maybe. So he plucked a cello like a banjo, basically taught himself to play the cello like a banjo. Mm. And that is what creates sound. So it is this kind of, it's a familiar sound, but it's, it's, it's not quite, it's something slightly off about that banjo. Mm. I love that. And I think the cinematography for me is the most beautiful I've seen all year. You know, the, the film mm. is so gorgeously lit. Yeah, and so gorgeously framed, actually. Uh, you know, uh, the compositions, the color, I mean, you know, the lighting is so rich. Uh, you know, particularly, well, actually, I was going to say particularly in the interiors, because they're almost Rembrandt-y. Yeah, like, mm. you know, the, the way that the faces are lit against the dark paneling. But then if you look outside, even the mountains seem lit. Mm. You know, kind of, I don't know what time of day they filmed it or how they graded it, you know, but the effect of different qualities of light on the mountains that are nonetheless kind of subtle but vividly rendered is just spectacular. I just, you know, I think it's a, it's, a, it's extraordinary cinematography. Um, the person I also wanted to mention is Jesse Plemons, mm. you know, because I thought he was magnificent in a different way. He's like so quiet and reserved you know, and he's often looking down, yeah. Mm-hmm. But he exhibits like this kind of real quiet strength and, and determination, really, almost without saying anything. From the beginning, when you see him in the bathtub, and he really looks like a 19th century person, you know. <laughs> I mean, he's the one who most closely resembles, you know, photographs that you see of that era, yeah, with the hat, yeah. and, you know. But I, I thought it was extraordinary what he brings to the role, because it's a real solidity he's clearly in love with rose yeah he's clearly very kind and forbearing both towards rose and towards his brother Mm. yeah there's obviously a history with the parents yes Mm -hmm. because you know the mother is like a new york sophisticate yeah like when rose brings a drink she says i won't drink that right i think she even had an english accent didn't she the mother possibly i I think that's what i thought i heard you know sure And it would have been believable at the time. Yeah, absolutely. So there's obviously something that the parents did, or there's there's a fight back, you know, the two boys are almost like the opposite of what the parents are, yeah? Mm-hmm. And actually there's an interesting conciliation at the end where, you know, Plemons says, Rose would like you to come over Christmas. Know, Christmas, yeah? So that seems... Yeah, so I think this is why, like, you know, Jane Campion is so great, because there are just these little things... Yeah, that suggests something bigger and deeper and, yeah. Yeah, the family relations is is one that I hadn't hadn't dug into much, but I I certainly had questions about it, you know, and part of the question was if Phil being gay was something more, if something, for instance, that Jesse Plemons knew, because maybe it was an open secret in the family. Mm. And that's why there is, he's so resistant to going to dinner with them for instance. Mm. And that's maybe why when he dies at the end, it's a very uncharitable reading of the parents, I suppose, but maybe why um, when he dies at the end at the funeral, um, the parents seem, well, they're so willing to, um, the mother gives that jewellery to Rose yes. and they you know, invite for dinner and so on. So 
but I mean that's that again that's, that's hugely speculative because it's not those aren't questions that are answered in the film I just wonder whether it's opening the possibility to that that family history well I think it's definitely opening up uh, those possibilities I mean definitely the way of life that the boys have chosen is the opposite of the way of life that the clearly very wealthy and sophisticated parents have mm. right um, I think uh, Phil's sexuality is obviously a part of it but there is also something with the brother and clearly the brother must know yeah, or must sense something it's very interesting as well because you know I think Certainly from my knowledge and experience, right, of, you know, people sleeping together in the same bed and so on, was very common before modern times, you know. Mm. Uh, and also, I think, a kind of an acceptance of difference without quite being able to name what that difference is was also quite common. I mean, you're, you know, you're, uh, lots of families in my village, for example, have unmarried uncles and, you mm -hmm. know, kind of... Uh, uh, without the question of sexuality necessarily, but they're the black sheep of the family. And well, they're not the black sheep in the sense that they often greatly contribute to family life, but they're more like there's a sadness around them. Right. Yes, they were never able to have their own house and their own family, and you know. yeah. <laughs> so, i.e., they were kind of failures at life, right? Mm. Uh, and of course, Phil is a rejection of that, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost like instead of accepting that role, he kind of, you know, tries to be the dominant kind of alpha male in every situation, doesn't care, you know, whether he's nasty to people or whatever. So, you, but you wonder, or the, the reason why I'm bringing this up now is how much of this is the Jesse Plemons character aware of, yeah? Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're sleeping, they sleep in the same bed, right? So he must aware of, be aware of something, yes, they've chosen to be together, yeah? So they've developed this ranch together, right? Like part of the conversation is how they started 25 years ago, right? So there's certainly a feeling that the Jesse Plemons character had a choice not to subject himself to the kind of treatment he receives from Phil on a sure. daily basis. Yes. Right? He had these choices. He's been to college too, and he's happier uh, being perceived as wealthy mm. and that sort of thing. So the question is, why then this? And one of the answers could be, he is too timid. And yes. actually, you know, and he and he doesn't feel that that's a choice he can make. Another is that he feels like it's a choice he needs to make for his brother. He's, he knows his brother needs him. Yes. Well, I my bet would be on the latter. Yeah. Um, you know, because he really does show the strength. I think. Yeah. I mean, he chooses Rose. He yeah. He brings her in. He says no to his brother. Yeah, mm -hmm. several times. Right. So um, I think. It's probably one of those things where he's done it for his brother until the point where he realizes he doesn't have the life he wants, which is, you know... One without a woman in it and a family and yeah. things that he wants. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, it's a fascinating film. It is. I was really surprised. I, I mean, I was so ready to hate it, just not knowing nothing about it, just on the basis that everyone has been yelling about it for a little while. And so mm. that's just, you know, well, I'm looking forward to thinking this is a big pile of poo. And it's not. It's really good. It's really good. Um, really beautifully made. Um, all shot in New Zealand, apparently, on the it South looks Island. gorgeous. Uh, Jane, Jane Campion is a, a Kiwi director and, and funded from, like, all over the Commonwealth, it seems, right? Yes. Um, and then released on, on Netflix. But I think I think it's really really successful. Yes, and um, and, I, and I know you you're keen to not overdo talking about the the 
the plot ultimately the kind of the who done it as I was talking about but I think it is important I, no, I mean I that's one of the reasons that I was really into it no, because that's the way that turns back on the end and you and it puts everything into this reflection I th- really really works for me I think it's important too I just didn't want to minimize all those other aspects yeah sure sure it's a good film um, so you're saying everyone's talking about it but actually relatively few people have seen it so you know I, I can't recommend it enough it's on Netflix uh, it it made the top ten and then quickly dropped out, right? So right. yeah, and uh, I think certainly anyone with special interest in <laughs> things having to do with the homosexual, with queerness, with toxic masculinity, this is a film that's going to be talked about for the next twenty years. Yeah, along those lines, yeah. Also, you know, Jane Campion is one of I think the great directors of uh, you know the last two or three decades, and I think this is the film of hers that I've seen that I've liked the most, you know, so worth seeing for that reason. And it, I think it truly has magnificent performances from uh, Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons. They are mm. truly outstanding. And also it's a film that, um, it's another film that has people moving a big piano in unwieldy situations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, it's a film that it's made me want to rewatch the piano because, you know, obviously it's a great feminist classic. It's a film that, you know, women love. But I didn't love it when it came out. Yeah. Mm. It's like I understood what people appreciated in it, but I didn't respond to it like, you know, on an individual basis. So I'd be curious to see it again. Well, I've never seen it, so we could watch it. We could watch it. Yeah, that would be great. Um, I also think just as the... I, the relationship with the instrument actually is interesting in this, and the and her relationship with her instrument and Cumberbatch's with his, and also the constant recurrence of of uh, animals. The film uses horses and rabbits and dogs yes. constantly, and I don't know. Well, it, dominance it, over nature is, you know, is always perceived as a really macho thing. So, for example, the stairs, the hallway leading mm-hmm. up to the stairs is full of antlers and dead animals and. Yeah, it is almost like this cliched over, yeah, yeah sure. compensation really uh, masculine thing. It's actually one of the one of the things that reveals um, Pete's character mm. uh, how easily he snaps the rabbit's neck, and and it reveals not only his but also Phil sees it, and you see in his eyes, oh my god, he did that so quickly, yes, and he's shocked actually. Was that scene where the boy said, "My father told me I was too strong," and? Phil looks at him, you? <laughs> like, yeah. you, know, you little mints. <laughs> yeah. But then we see that, in fact, he not, is. It doesn't have for him to snap a rabbit's neck like that. Uh, uh, yeah. Which, so. which goes to that building up of this thing of, oh, what is this kid capable of? Yes. As we find out. And we find out he's capable of everything for his mother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a film about a mummy's boy. You know? yes. <laughs> Don't fuck around with him. <laughs> All right, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at eavesdropmovies. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. That poet, by the way, was it Walt Whitman? Yes, it was. <laughs> I didn't know if he was gay. Yes. Uh, and Leaves of Grass is... is uh, and Walden, I think. 
Um, yeah, that was the other thing I was thinking about, yeah. Uh, so the, it, it reminded me very much of that scene uh, with uh, Cumberbatch in that sexual reverie. Yeah, so it's here, Whitman's own life came under scrutiny for his presumed homosexuality. And uh, the one Thoreau was the other one, isn't it? Thoreau is Walden, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I don't think Thoreau is gay, so... Uh, but that scene reminded me of both Thoreau and Wiltman, of Leaves of Grass and Wiltman. Mm. Um, uh, Henry David Thoreau was a naturalist, essayist, poet and philosopher. Sounds pretty gay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, only do you. <laughs> uh, 